Hello, I'm Darren Steele, and this is the Think Queerly podcast. What would the world look like if you used your unique insights as an LGBTQ person to make a profound evolutionary difference in the world? And even if that world was just your immediate family, your workplace, or your community? Now, in my work as a coach, I help LGBTQ people identify their creative genius so that they can use their difference to make a difference in the world and thrive as an authentic and queer human being. When we make our voices heard, we not only empower ourselves, but others in diversity and visibility. As queer people, when we use our lived experience of having lived outside of the status quo or on the margins to help others, our lives will also improve. So in today's episode, I want to talk about the... I want to be able to talk. (laughs) I want to talk about the decision fatigue paradox of too many gender-identifying pronouns. Now, this is not going to be a contentious episode. This is not going to be a provocative episode. I want to bring up something that I became aware of by reading somebody else's article on Medium advocating for pronoun use within the LGBTQ community, something that I absolutely agree with, but something occurred to me because there's always felt like there was a bit of discomfort. And I wanted to know what this other discomfort was. So hold on to your hats. (laughs) Remember, this is a discussion here about language and language use, that the nature and the economy of language provides clues about what lasts and what language users will use. I'm going to touch on, but this article, this podcast today has nothing to do with the right or wrong of breaking down the gender binary. So let's take a sentence example. Let's say you're reading a book, or you hear somebody say something. Whose jacket is that? The teacher asks the class. It's theirs, said the student, while pointing to the person in the rainbow shirt and the iridescent blue hair. Now hold on to that thought. Proactively using gender-affirming pronouns to indicate the diversity and visibility of identity is important for our human rights. And pronouns used to properly recognize gender and sexual identities is also a political act that disrupts the status quo. But I think what's been missing from the pronoun debate is the discussion about how the nature of language and who or what will have the final say on which pronoun variations endure. So on the one hand, to declare that proper pronoun use in favor of one's identity is non-negotiable, while justifiable from a diversity and human rights standpoint, and on the other hand, This viewpoint is missing an important important aspect of linguistics and how language works. So last week, I think it was, I read an article on Medium by an author called Margot Q. Pronouns in the queer community, why they're important and why they're non-negotiable. 
Now, the writer makes some valid and important justifications for the variety and inclusiveness of personal pronouns. Now, this podcast today, just to reiterate, because I know people, rightly so, are very sensitive to the issue of label and identity. This is not an attack on the writer. This is not an attack on the writer's ideas. And what Margot Q wrote about helped me to realize one of the core reasons for why this plethora of pronouns to include gender variation feels awkward. And this has nothing to do with personal, emotional, philosophical, or moral reasonings of any kind. I do not object to any of the pronouns that people are using to define their identity outside of the simple binary. But I feel, from what I know about having studied language, is that the current assortment of new personal pronouns is only temporary. Now, from an observational perspective, the six or more gender signaling pronouns simply cannot sustain itself in the English language. The amount of variance is artificial. It's almost like linguistic capitalism, where there's too many options that result in decision fatigue and more confusion than solution in communication. It's like going to the grocery store and there are a dozen different flavors of jam and six different companies producing that jam. And if they're all priced the same or not that much different, which one do you choose and why? And of course, I know that's a kind of a weak comparison, right? Because, you know, we're not jam. (laughs) But people do become tired of trying to understand what terms mean within their subconscious mental language software. So to reiterate, this is not a situation of someone refusing to accept a new pronoun group like Z or here. And that's spelled Z-E or Z-E in Canadian English and H-I-R on moral grounds. But rigidly enforcing the gender binary is a problem when we only say he and she or hers and his. That's a problem. It's based in ignorance and often arrogance. It may come from religion, ideology, or self-righteousness. I'm interested in discussing the organic and efficient nature of language and how language over time, and in this case English language and its speakers, how language over time uses, practices, modifies, codifies, and eventually settles upon new words and and changes in the meaning of words that eventually accommodate either new ideas or semantic variants, expanding the understanding of what a particular word means within its so-called semantic word field. So here's the linguistic challenge with one too many pronouns. You can follow along... um, on this podcast with the article that is published on Think Queerly in case it doesn't come through in me speaking what some of these pronouns are. So here's a list of, and there may be more, what we're currently working with. So there would be the combination she, hers, he, him, they, them, 
and I M spelled E Y and E M and Z Zem spelled X E X E M and Z here. That's a Z or a Z E and then H I R. The introduction of more than one new set of pronouns at a time is not dissimilar to when you learn a new language. And if you learn a new language as an adult, that's actually harder than learning it as a child. There's lots of reason for that, but I'm not going to go into that here today. But just imagine if you've learned a new language, maybe your first year at college or university, or you've taken an introductory course to a language, and you're trying to express yourself, but you don't know the correct word, you don't know the syntax, you don't know the grammar, you might not even know grammar in your own language to understand why this sentence is supposed to be structured this way. It takes time, it takes practice, it takes patience, and sometimes there's a lot of frustration when you can't communicate what it is you want to say. Now, for many of us, the they-them pronoun or pronouns have been in use for a long time. Using they to express the singular is relatively common and it's and it's codified even in the dictionary. You can look it up that it's used both in the singular and the plural form. They them are also words that we know. They're not abstract. They haven't just been created recently. They are pronouns and therefore the linguistic leap to shift from the plural to the singular and provide the context for singular or plural within speech as to who is talking or to whom we are referring to, is that much easier on the language speaker than forcing or trying to adopt or teach a brand new word altogether. Now, we can further fortify the case for using they, them, their, when we consider that the direct pronoun you and the possessive pronoun your can express both the singular or the plural. So I'm going to give you four sentence examples and listen closely. Number one, how did you enjoy our last speaker? Number two, I hope you will all come back again and visit us next year. Number three, I would like to draw your attention to the front of the room. And number four, I would like you to turn to page 13 in your books. Now, the differences are really subtle between each sentence. The first and the third sentence, it's not clear if the speaker is addressing a group of people or one person. So, how did you enjoy our last speaker? Imagine... I just said to you here right now, how did you enjoy my last podcast? But what if in my mind, I imagine I'm speaking to 10 of you listening at the same time? Then how did you enjoy the last podcast? Or how did you enjoy my last speech if I'm standing in front of a group of you? There's no way of really knowing unless I added more context, more words to that sentence. But then when I say, I would like you to turn to page 13 in your books. The way that we know there is the change in the noun book, singular to books, plural, not because one student has many books on their desk, but because there are many students 
reading the same book at the same time. So that's how language works. It plays with all of these different things in syntax and grammar and the overall communication variables such as gesture and body language to go beyond the spoken or the written word. So let's come back to the very original sentence example and break it down a bit more. So a narrative, let's say you're reading a book, and here we go. Whose jacket is that? The teacher asked the class. It's theirs, said the student, while pointing to the person in the rainbow shirt and the iridescent blue hair. Now, the simple two-word response and the physical gesture, so the two-word response is, it's theirs, and the physical gesture of pointing work very economically within that speaker's communication. We know that the body language is the most demonstrative aspect of a person, or in this case, the student's response, one that adds a lot more nuance and information to their answer above and beyond, it's theirs. Now, a gendered answer, to rewrite that sentence, to indicate ownership of the jacket in a room full of people, would have taken the same amount of words as I used in the actual description and the narrative. So, for example, it's hers, the girl in the corner in the rainbow shirt and the iridescent blue hair. So this is a perfect example of the preferred use of the gender-neutral possessive pronoun, theirs. Because theirs satisfies ease of language use, and it doesn't reinforce any kind of gender. So when we speak about language economy now, ease of application is an important consideration when we ask people to recognize that using new pronouns offers inclusion and acceptance. If you ask somebody, how can you be more inclusive? How can you um, include more LGBTQ people? How can you be more accepting of us? And you make it easier on them to do it, it will be easier for them to do it. So it's it's generally difficult for institutions or groups of people to create linguistic changes that stick. Why? Because language is this nebulous thing that many of us speak. And it's not to claim that advocating for linguistic change is right or wrong. That happens all the time in many different spheres of language use. Instead, this is a situation in which people are working to change a structure that is so embedded into how we function as human beings that forcing change outside of organic and otherwise invisible change, forcing that change is perceived as abrupt or disruptive to what language speakers are used to. So it's difficult, but it's not impossible to to change language, especially when the system that we use to speak is something that we don't even think about. We don't really think that much about what we're saying. We just open our mouth and go. But this line of reasoning is similar to the concept that you've maybe heard of not being able to affect radical change within a system when using the rules and limitations of that very same system that you're trying to change. So when a person or a group of people demand a change in language, that disruption 
requires a willingness and a commitment to the change from the majority of language users. That is, a majority of users within the system itself. And to create such a forced change requires a really grounded and strong reasoning, as it is with the case of properly and respectfully labeling one's preferred gender and sexual identity. That's a case for ethical human rights. So, some more examples that help us really understand this economy of language and how language is changing sometimes on its own or through uh, social intervention and and, um, desire for change. Take the word actor, which used to be a gendered noun which is really a rare occurrence in English to this day, dropping the feminine actress and adopting the singular neutral term actor is one, an example of language economy, but two, it was initiated by changing attitudes and social mores. So I pulled up the Wikipedia entry for the term actress, and I'm quoting, Within the profession, the readoption of the neutral term dates to the post-war period of the 1950s and 60s, when the contributions of women to cultural life in general were being reviewed. When The Observer and The Guardian published their new joint style guide in 2010, it stated, Use actor for both male and female actors. Do not use actress except when in name of award, e.g. Oscar for best actress. The guide's authors stated that actress comes into the same category as authoress, comedienne, manageress, lady doctor, male nurse, and similar obsolete terms that date from a time when professions were largely the preserve of one sex, usually men. As Whoopi Goldberg put it in an interview with the paper, an actress can only play a woman. I'm an actor. I can play anything. End quote. So just for fun, if you're following the news right now about who's in the leadership race in the United States Democratic Party, how often have you heard a reporter or journalist say, Mayor Pete? You see it in writing, you hear it, it's like they're making him the friendly guy. Why is that? Conversely, have you ever heard a journalist or commenter say, Senator Elizabeth. No. And why is that? Because it's really easy to say Senator Elizabeth Warren, but it's somewhat more of a mouthful, and maybe Mayor Pete would appreciate that reference, but it's a challenge to pronounce Mayor Pete's last name, Buttigieg. I'm always unsure myself whether I'm saying that correctly. And unless you've heard it before and heard it often enough and know how to properly pronounce it, it's not a common last name. For the language user, it's about what's easiest. They may find the most creative or easy way to say what needs to be said without causing any form of hindrance. So my guess is... People looked at the last name and thought, well, instead of being on camera, on air, and stumbling, we'll just say, Mayor Pete. So there's an idea of throwing things against the wall until it sticks. Kind of a a metaphor for the change that's going to hold and endure in language. 
And what we're witnessing right now with these three or more personal pronoun variants, like in the example that I gave earlier, is a forced political linguistic experimentation that's moving hopefully towards some form of retention, some sort of positive change. Now, I anticipate that this drive for voicing one's correct pronoun will settle with they, them. While the other programs may drop out of use, and I just don't get a sense that they'll be totally popularized or adopted. And they may just remain used on the margins, so to speak, within subgroups that prefer that naming, but it doesn't go beyond that. I don't know. The pronouns they and them are already linguistic constructs in the English language, which adds to the economy concept here. They're easier to modify and expand within the semantic application than creating new or abstract variations that have no connection or no reference to to anything in current linguistic use. Now, once again, that does not mean that one of these modifications or changes or new words is right or wrong, and it also does not mean that they, them, will win out as the variant to break the traditional gender binary pronoun grouping. So let's consider another example, the the linguistic concept of loan words. So in German, the English word computer was adopted without modification of any kind or an attempt to create a new word in German. Now, German has three genders to express their nouns, masculine, feminine, neuter, and computer was given the masculine gender because it ends in the suffix er and Most German nouns, if not all German nouns ending in ER, are masculine. So German is also a language that can create new words by combining many words together or morphological suffixes and prefixes, and and, and it, it can be just this big, long word of 20 or 30 characters. But that didn't happen. A, 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 a purely German word for computer was not created. There, it, there is a word that means to compute or to calculate generally, berechnen, and, you know, one wonders why that didn't get turned into a noun substantive, der berechner. I don't know why. Maybe somebody out there did some research about why that didn't happen, but perhaps the, the container of the meaning, the semantic field around what the English word computer meant, and perhaps because it was generally speaking, invented in the United States, that may have been the primary reason for adopting that word as a loan word and giving it um, what it needed to function within the German language, a masculine gender. So a final example is that some loan words are adopted from another language and they just endure even when there's a clear and easy and, and present native alternative. So in English, we will use the word Zeitgeist, which was adopted from German. And I even just used it in my second last uh, podcast and article. Now, the literal translation of the word is time, ghost. Zeit is time and Geist is ghost or spirit. But idiomatically, the expression would refer to, in English, sign of the times or spirit of the age. So this begs the question, 
if we've already got those expressions, we had those expressions, why weren't they used? You know, well, maybe because in part zeitgeist is one word. But the point I'm making is that what lasts, what endures in our language is often either economical or random. In most cases, the end goal is ease of use for effective and efficient communication. But in in this case of zeitgeist, the answer may also be about style and flair and moving towards the exotic and perhaps an elevated style of speech when talking about theater or what's happening in the world today. It just stands out more. Maybe that's all it is. So to conclude, proper pronoun usage is important, if not imperative, for human rights. At the same time, it would bode well to respect the value of of effective communication. If we make it more difficult to communicate, more doors will be shut in the form of the hearts and minds that we want and need to change. And this is not to say that we should give up or not try and modify our language. Instead, how can we affect the change that we want to see in the world? The visible and the auditory recognition and language for one's true identity while assisting those for whom this is an entirely new concept. What will we accept given the natural economy of language? What will we refuse to tolerate any longer? Using they, them, theirs instead of he, his or she, hers is a political act that moves our society towards one of the that moves us a society towards one of collectivism instead of absolute individualism. The more that we avoid labeling gender, the more all-encompassing and inclusive we potentially become. The less we define a separation of the sexes, the less we reinforce a binary, and the more that we focus on the human being over there without a need for presumption, confusion, insult, or exclusion, the better and the more humane we will all become. Thank you for listening. Now, if you're struggling to make a difference, I can help. The best way to experience my coaching is, I know this sounds funny, to experience it. So let's book a conversation to find out what you want to create and why that's not happening for you at the moment. You can discover more by heading over to my website at darrensteel.com slash coaching, or just look for the work with me menu item at the top of the page. Until next time, think queerly.